Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Activist Lawyer. Um, today, I'm joined in the studio by Siobhan Conlon of Siobhan Conlon Solicitors in Dublin. So welcome to the studio, Siobhan. Thanks a million. It's good to be back in Uri. Oh, back in Uri. You've been yeah, here a few times then. I have indeed, yeah. <laughs> oh, great. So thanks for, for making the effort to, to join us here in our lovely studio today. Just a little bit of background on Siobhan. So Siobhan is a human rights lawyer specialising in immigration, asylum and criminal defence law. Siobhan has a master's in international criminal law and gained experience in the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia in The Hague. Siobhan qualified as a New York attorney in 2005 and is a member of the Law Society in Ireland. She formerly worked for a top-tier corporate law firm before specialising in representing the most vulnerable in society. Siobhan recently retired from the board of directors of Spirazi, Ireland's National Centre for Survivors of Torture, a great organisation. So Siobhan, thanks again for joining us. Um, you might take us back a little bit in time just to tell us, well, why law? First of all, what made you um, get into this area of practice? Um, I think I probably always knew um, if I was going to do law, going to be a lawyer, that I'd end up working where I am now, um, human rights law, representing vulnerable people. Um, I suppose growing up in my house, social justice, you know, would have been a big theme and um, politics would have been discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I think Sarah mentioned before, I have uh, relatives, my aunt and uncle, cousins living in South Armagh. So as a kid, I would have been up and down. Um, to visit them at weekends, you know. Yeah. So being in South Armagh in the 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. very different place mm-hmm. than it is today. Um, and so as a kid, just an outsider looking in, I suppose that kind of opened my eyes to the world, really. Um, you know, it would have been a highly militarised place yeah. at that time. Um, and, you know, overhearing, earwigging probably, conversations <laughs> that adults would have about what was going on um, at the time, you know, the politics um, sure. and just maybe the sheer injustice of it all. Um, and I think that probably just seeped into the subconscious and probably had a bit of an influence on me. Um, and later on, I think, you know, when I when I finished with the corporate law and was thinking, what will I do next? I remember reading Michael Mansfield's book, oh, um, yeah. Memoirs of a Radical Lawyer, I mm-hmm. think it was called. And just being really impressed and inspired by his work and his work with Gary Pierce and representing the Birmingham Six and, you know, yeah. the miners and other people at a time when... I'm sure it wasn't easy for them, mm-hmm. you know, in the UK doing the work that they did. I'm sure they weren't really looked upon, maybe even by their peers fondly. Um, and just been really inspired and impressed um, by that. So I think that probably was what led me into studying law. Uh-huh. Um, and I, after school, I went and, and went to UCD and did B&L. Um, and I think probably doing B&L, business and legal, we were kind of funneled into a corporate law environment Um, and I don't really remember there being kind of a choice or you know having human rights or even criminal defence that being kind of an option it just Mm -hmm. didn't seem to be available so when I finished uh, in UCD um, I did the New York bar so I sat the New York bar uh, and myself and a friend went off to New York for a few months and quickly figured out it's very difficult to get a job and a visa uh, you know in New York so we came home uh, and I ended up working in one of the bigger um, accountancy firms in their regulatory section and I studied at night for the the qualified lawyer transfer test I think it was called at the time it was sort of like the FE1s um, type exams um, and once you did those you could qualify 
as a solicitor um, in the south, in, in, in Ireland. Uh, and so I qualified and then got a job in one of the big corporate firms uh, as a solicitor and really just, I think, early on thought, I, I'm not sure this is really why I became a lawyer. This isn't really for me. I just didn't have the interest in the subject sure. matter and the clients. Yeah. Um, and so I, I packed that in after a year or so and went traveling um, for a year. And I think that was probably the best thing mm-hmm. I could have done. Um, it just really opened my opened my eyes to the world, just gave me a different perspective on, on what was out there and, and even the different types of law that I could yeah. do. And in Sydney, I worked in a medical defence organisation for a while and um, eventually came home. But as I was kind of coming home, travelling, the recession hit Ireland. So yeah. when I left, things were great. When I was away, things were suddenly very, very grim mm-hmm. and the calls from home were, were kind of, you know, you, you're not going to get a job. This is this is not a great place to yeah. be. So I decided it was a good time to go back and sort of retrain. And I went to Galway, um, to the Irish Centre for Human Rights in, in the University of Galway mm-hmm. and studied a master's specialising in international criminal law. So it was it was a human rights master's, um, but my kind of specialisation was international criminal law. And that kind of um, led me to The Hague, to the ICTY. Mm. Um, So I was there for a bit of time. Um, Actually, when I got there, the particular case I was working on, it was at judgment drafting stage. So the trial had actually finished. um, And I was working in chambers with, it was a three-judge chamber, um, just helping out with the the judgment drafting process Um, so it was yeah an interesting case Gotovina et al was was what it was called it was a Croatian prosecution um, three defendants and all of whom ended up being acquitted Um, right yeah which was unusual for the ICTY and Mm. for for international criminal law generally so two one was acquitted um, at trial after the trial and two then on appeal um, so yeah, inter- interesting time. And after that, I came back to Dublin, and I really wanted to get some experience um, advocating. You know, being yeah. in court on my feet, mm-hmm. um, advocating. So I approached one of the the criminal defence firms in Dublin and just kind of said, you know, will you let me come in for a few weeks and see what this is like? You know, do, do I, yeah. is, you know, just to get a feel for is this what I want to do? Am I any good at it? So I ended up staying there for longer than. Than I thought. Um, absolutely loved it. Did you loved yeah. being in court? Um, just loved my colleagues, the clients, everything about it, um, the law, um, and so decided to at that point set up uh, my own practice. So wow. that was I know <laughs> it's yeah. a big step. <laughs> it was a bit of a jump. Like in retrospect, yeah. I'm not sure what I was thinking really but again I yeah. think it was at a time when there wasn't much happening um, mm-hmm. so it may have been a good time to do it probably yeah um, you know yeah. If, if the big firms were calling with their big salaries you know you could be led another way but sure. um, yeah I, th- I think it probably all just happened at a good time, good time. and so yeah. yeah and so for the first few years um, criminal defence was my my main thing and I built up a bit of a practice there mm-hmm. Um and then joined the um, panel, the, the free legal aid panel for representation of, of international protection applicants. Okay, yeah. And that was kind of my introduction into immigration law. Um, and that the practice just went from there mm-hmm. and built from there. And now I would say, you know, I'm probably 80 percent immigration really? asylum wow. and, and yeah. related judicial review and, and that kind of area, mm-hmm. maybe 20 percent criminal defense. And um, so it kind of did a full 
yeah. you know, 190. Yeah. So interesting. So, yeah. um, and just with your, your cases as well, I mean, you're obviously working with very vulnerable um, people and um, we had mentioned ch- children as well. What type of cases are, I suppose, on your desk now or what really stands out in terms of your work at the moment? Yeah, I think, you know, the last six months or a year, my big concern maybe and the cases that come before me that maybe need the most priority are, as you say, children in the international protection process. Okay. Are these unaccompanied um, minors usually? Or? So we, I don't think um, private practitioners get referred unaccompanied mm-hmm. minors, but what happens is if, if a child comes into the state and makes an application for asylum and has a, a birth date that, that says they're a child, child. Yeah. they're assessed by TUSLA, the, the Child and Family Agency, mm-hmm. um, and they'll give like an age determination um, assessment if the child doesn't have, you know, a, a valid passport sure. or some ID document mm-hmm. to, to sort of categorically prove their age. Um, and if TUSLA assess them and say, look, we don't believe you're a child, um, then that child is put into the adult process and so may end mm-hmm. up on my desk you know, um, as an adult applicant. But in fact, when the child comes in to see me, they're saying, well, no, I'm, I'm a child, child. And I went to school until this wow. age and my yeah. parents were killed and I had to leave or, yeah. you know, whatever the case may be. And that's procedurally difficult to yeah. deal with because TUSLA will say they won't reassess the child unless you can provide some documentary evidence um, for the purpose of, okay. of a reassessment. Um, and, you know, it's been the case that even if I think maybe with Tusa with capacity is- issues in the last six months, I think they've been well documented. Um, it's been mm-hmm. in the newspapers. There have been reports yeah. about it. Um, that even if we can put forward, you know, maybe evidence or, or request a reassessment, that it just isn't happening. Sure. Um, and, you know, really, really vulnerable children. Like, I can't really imagine anyone more vulnerable than you know, a child yeah. in the state with no parents, no social worker, no nobody. Um, you know, if they go missing, well, who's to know they're gone missing? Yeah. Well, you that's know? a problem here too. And then do they become like aged out potentially if, say, that takes a long time for Tizzler or it's not really moving along as fast as you well, would like it to? What has happened is... Um, we have taken cases, uh, you know, mm. by way of judicial review in respect okay. of it. And, and that creates another issue um, because they don't have an ex-friend. So so they're a child, um, but they don't have somebody to initiate proceedings on their behalf, which is required. Because the state can't if they've no, determined that they're an adult. Yeah. Exactly, because they don't have a parent because mm-hmm. of, because they're an unaccompanied minor. They, they don't have family generally um, wow. because they're an asylum seeker um, and they don't have a social worker because Tuzla have said they don't, you know, essentially believe that they are a child. Yeah. So, I mean, it's been the case for me that I've ended up being an ex-friend as a solicitor, which isn't usually allowed. It's not appropriate, mm-hmm. I suppose. It could be seen in certain circumstances as a conflict of interest, sure. but... For this particular circumstance, it's not. Um, mm-hmm. And you will be able to bring a case. Okay. But again, you know, as a solicitor, that's not an ideal situation. And I, I can't imagine any other area of law where no. you are acting as an ex-friend, essentially bringing proceedings and all that goes with that, the liability and everything else. Um, and I, I don't think that would be an issue, but um, it still just highlights the, the total vulnerability of, sure. of these kids. You know, even their access to the courts is difficult, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so yeah, that's that's one sort of area that that um, has difficult. been you know yeah. difficult and mm-hmm. on my desk mm-hmm. um, in the last while. And um, the other one, 
would be um, homeless asylum seekers. So, mm. you know, that's, that's been a getting a lot of press at the moment. Huge totally. Figures. It's actually yeah. quite shocking. I think the IRC, the Irish Refugee Council released a report um, this year just saying I have a, a little bit of it here just that it's an absolute crisis mm-hmm. of accommodation for anyone seeking international protection in Ireland and they describe it as a loss of dignity um, and destitution among those force and you've seen it I mean I've seen the press covering it quite recently so that must be a huge yeah problem yeah and I think like you know from a legal perspective as lawyers we, we can take cases you know to the high court we, we have the state have certain obligations under eu law to provide material yeah. reception conditions um and we can seek damages and and those cases actually mm. the issue of frankovich damages and they will mm. be heard in november um, oh right okay there's two test cases that have been chosen and i think it's it's set down for hearing in november and um, yeah. that's the issue of damages but but again that takes you so far yeah. like if people are still claiming asylum and are still homeless, it's, you know, the problem still exists. And are these families as well? or what? No, I think generally speaking, it's single males, mm-hmm. but there have been unaccompanied minors and there have oh. been women, I believe. Um, but I think they say generally the majority um, who are denied accommodation are um, single males. My yeah. goodness. Mm. Gosh. So yeah. those cases come up in the test cases in November. That'll be interesting. Yeah. But again, the problem continues. And I guess it's up to mm. the state um, to rectify that. Yeah. And just as well, I remember back long ago when I did asylum law in um, in Dublin, um, a big area was family reunification. Is that yeah. still what update us on that I haven't I haven't looked into that in a long time yeah that was always a, a big one <laughs> yeah yeah that's as soon as somebody gets status they want to know how can I get my mm-hmm. how can my family come to join me um so so yeah I mean it's provided for in the act section mm-hmm. 56 of the international protection act provides for family reunification um, so someone who has a grant of refugee status um, or subsidiary protection can apply um, for family reunification with the spouse mm-hmm. who they married prior to making the application um, or a child who's under the age of 18 or, and not married. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've 12 months to do that. Um, the difficulties that have arisen, I think, for me um, is to do is, is really from people from countries where Sharia law um prevails when it comes to adopted children so a child I think the Supreme Court has interpreted um, a child um, under section 56 um, it can be an adopted child Mm -hmm. Um, as far as I know there's no interpretation of well what what is is an adopted child for the purposes of family reunification Um, and if you're from a country uh, where Sharia law prevails there is no full adoption Um, you can't have a full adoption certificate so they have so it's not like a formal procedure through the courts or anything like that that would be recognised it's it's just not allowed under Sharia law full adoption so they have like certificates of responsibility I um, see where they you know and and Mm -hmm. from countries you know clients of mine from a place maybe like Somalia um, that's you know seen conflict for many many years Mm. and humanitarian disaster mm-hmm. really um, they may have their own children and they may be caring for nieces and nephews yeah. whose parents are deceased through conflict mm-hmm. um, and it means when they come to apply for family reunification that's pretty difficult um, I'd say so yeah, yeah. so I, th- I think that's an area that's probably been litigated at the moment just that area of, of you know the adopted child and yeah. what does it mean for the purposes of family reunification and recognising the family unit perhaps mm. maybe going outside what we 
deem a family here and applying it to those particular cases that's always seems to have been a bit of an issue especially where children are concerned yeah yeah even standard visa applications I mean we've when I was practicing we find that extremely difficult but Mm -hmm. to the client their life is completely normal and it's standard that they would have you know children but again you face the barriers then with the home office that you've been dealing with that this isn't a recognized family for uh, B or C whatever so those cases always proved to be quite difficult but hopefully there's some movement on that then going forward yeah I hope so I mm-hmm. hope so um yeah just to make things a little bit easier for for you know mm-hmm. the clients concerned yeah. so the numbers increase and I know practitioners here feel the same in terms of people trying to access justice particularly within asylum it just seems to be an ever going ongoing disaster um with numbers um do you think there's maybe I suppose it's just outside the legal work but maybe more of a hostile environment in Ireland I guess when it comes to asylum seekers just from the media we can see kind of mm. different cohorts of society really coming out and speaking against um, asylum seekers what has your kind of experience been on that or does it impact your work in any yeah, way? I, I think it does I mean especially when the the issue of homelessness of mm. asylum seekers um, and it was kind of at the start of this year that that began and was highlighted um, and at the same time you know um they have uh, you know we have a housing crisis anyway yeah. so when you put the two together it just seemed to create this negative mm. environment and it was easy I think for people to pinpoint maybe migrants or mm-hmm. asylum seekers as being the problem um, as opposed to maybe the system or you know yeah. the housing crisis itself and uh, as being the problem uh, and unfortunately you know I mean, even clients of mine who were living in tents outside the IPO office, you know, faced these sort of protests, if you like, by people wanting God. them out. And, oh, um, wow. And infiltrated, I think, by people not even from Ireland, mm. you know. Um, yeah. Stirring up trouble and very difficult. And I mean, it's sad as well, I think, for for me as a practitioner, because prior to that and years gone by, clients would come in and be so happy to be in Ireland and yeah. so thankful that they got a, you know, a Cade Mila Falcha and mm-hmm. a good welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's totally changed. Um, I think before they may have come from other countries in Europe and outside where they were treated very badly. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ireland was totally different. Was, but I think, yeah. you know, that's changing. So I don't think that they're, they have the same, you know... Kedmi LaFalcha. Exactly, yeah. And and they, they're not as happy to be here because things things mm. are not great, you know? And and that's sad. It is sad. And I mean when you think about the most like already vulnerable, potentially victims of tor- survivors of torture who are living on the street and you know there's no end in sight until we finally see some resolution which seems to be um, ongoing I think um, the report I mentioned had mentioned had um, referred to the past five months escalating to a massive Mm -hmm. scale that they've never seen before so this is a a really um, a really big crisis and you just think of the mental health of of these people and and their physical health as well like what are they living off how are they surviving so that's really really sad and it's really detrimental that the state you know gets on top of this as soon as possible and um, so different a different scene um when it comes to asylum um and i guess immigration law it has an impact on that as well but just one other um area of immigration that i'm i've always been interested in is naturalization mm. and that was a big theme here um in in especially since brexit we had oh, 
God, so many cases, a massive increase in people applying to become Irish. So naturalisation is normally where somebody maybe has, you know, acquired their refugee status or, you know, a requisite residence that they've been living lawfully in Ireland mm-hmm. for a period of time or where they have married an Irish spouse. Um, so I've seen in the Department um, of Justice recently and seen people share some changes in policy and within the law, the new act that came in as well, made some immigration changes in general. Are you hopeful that um, citizenship um, and the process of applying for Irish citizenship is going to become a little bit more streamlined? Because we have seen a lot of criticism in the past of huge delays, like ongoing delays, Mm -hmm. four or five years people are waiting. And just before we come on, I was mentioning to Siobhan, some of our cases were processed within literally within three or four months. Um, (laughs) And that's despite having cases on my desk that were waiting three, four years, you know, when other people come with cases that they just haven't received, um, you know, much of a response to. How, I mean, there is a need for this to be improved, but how do you see things going forward or what has your experience been with your clients? I think to be fair to the department, they've made efforts, you know, Mm -hmm. in the last number of years to to streamline the process, you know, particularly with applications for naturalisation. I think at the start of 2022, Mm -hmm. they brought in a new scorecard approach um, where they scored, you know, the document um, in order to provide, you had to get a score of 150 points Mm -hmm. to prove your residency for each year and the same for identity. And again, in recent months, they provided new guidelines, which I think Mm -hmm. is streamlined it even more. Yeah. Um, so it's reduced the amount of documents again um, to just a type A and type B document ah, okay. um, for yeah. each year of residency. So essentially, if, if you can get that, it's two documents for each year. Ah, okay. um, and you don't now have to um, provide every page of your current in-date passport certified what? by a solicitor, <laughs> which is great for me because yeah. really, you know, that w- when that came in initially, uh, it was wonderful for the client because they didn't mm. have to send their original passport in. They could keep it. Which is a big thing. Which is yeah. a big thing, you know. But for practitioners then realising they had <laughs> it to took certify. took you an R to certify. Jesus. And then if they had yeah. any other passports as well, like if they had a set, you still had to certify their stamped pages. So it could take you literally an R. It's <laughs> just, you know, we were ordering ink by the new time on, the, on the stamp, you know. So I think now it's just the biodata page. Ah, and it's just two documents. Uh-huh. Um, if, if you can get that for, for each year and for um, refugees they can um, provide uh, an affidavit instead of instead of the passport if they don't have it so I think in fairness things They're are trying. going in yeah, the right direction I think so yeah um, and I think guidelines will be produced in respect of naturalization by associations which will mm. be great because I think that's a we one need area those. yeah yeah where I think practitioners find it very difficult mm-hmm. to advise clients because uh-huh. it's so unclear um, what's required um, yeah. and you know so that is again just if you are I suppose there's a list of kind of criteria that you can um, make a citizenship an Irish citizenship application on where you have um, an affinity or an association with somebody who's Irish now I've seen applications go in made by clients themselves who come back mm-hmm. to me and they would have said I've been waiting you know two or three years and you see a copy of their application and they would have made it on the basis that you know their child was playing Gaelic football in Belfast and is learning Irish in school. Mm. And from their reading of, you know, 
the limited information on the application, they felt that they had made yeah. a valid application. You kind of felt really bad for them because mm. it is my experience that these are rarely, I've never seen one like that ever granted. Even cases where there would be a blood tie maybe mm. to someone else who's Irish and not a direct family member, somebody who falls within the statutory definitions upon who you can make an application like your spouse or whatever so yeah it's a very blurred grey area but I have to say I suppose working from based in Northern Ireland on cases that was something we'd be asked a lot on where they Mm -hmm. fell outside the normal kind of uh, criteria you know people really wanted to know how they might get an Irish passport plus they feel you know they're living on the island of Ireland Mm -hmm. and um, association was something that came up a lot and you're right you couldn't advise on it it was so difficult so that would be very welcome to have some sort of guidance on that Um, because I've never seen it I've never come across a case where it was and I think there was something in the High Court a couple of years ago as well where there were sisters who applied and I don't know whether it was six I can't remember what the outcome was but it has been challenged before I think that point on um, the criteria that the department used to establish whether the the, the, the relationship is strong enough to warrant yeah, yeah. The and, and the immigration service the website does have I suppose a limited amount mm. of guidance mm-hmm. and it speaks about reckonable residency in there That's for three right. years yes. and it speaks about you know exceptional circumstances where it's assent mm-hmm. you know if if you know and, and, and the way it's worded it, it kind of is saying look it's really only decent that they'll you know yeah. look at it and if it's if it's say a, a, a mother whose child is is a citizen or, mm-hmm. or siblings mm-hmm. um there has to be you know mm-hmm. nearly extraordinary circumstances where they're going yeah. but but yet nothing's clarified right. or explained uh-huh. as to well what exactly does that mean uh-huh. what do we need to provide mm. um yeah mm. interesting but it's good to see some movement anyway and you of, often hear there's talk of it going online like the the british system where you mm. make your citizenship application online i have to say i haven't done those it's very very straightforward mm-hmm. um it, you know compared to we're still sending massive bundles of paper to temporary when we're making the irish citizenship applications but a really interesting area, I think, and like the passport's one of the most popular in the world. It's ranked, I think, fourth or fifth in the index that so you check every so often. Yeah. So a busy area of work, but it would be good to see that become a little bit more streamlined and a bit more efficient and user friendly, I think, for both practitioners and for, for clients. Um, just outside of immigration and the work that you're doing, we were chatting as well about a case, an interesting case, Um uh, isn't it the one in Manhattan? I think you had a resident oh, Irish yeah. lady in Manhattan. Yeah, Kathleen, um, a lovely, lovely lady. Um, yeah, she, she got in touch with me. She's an Irish, she was, sorry, she, she's now deceased. Um, but an Irish lady who went to Manhattan, a single lady, went with her sister um, to Manhattan when she was, I think, in her 20s mm. um, and worked as a waitress there her entire life um, and, and told me she invested well in stocks which I found phenomenal you know <laughs> um, I wouldn't know where to start no. but she yeah lived in, a, in in the Upper West Side in, in a flat there and her sister lived in, in a flat above her and her sister had since um, died when, mm. when she got in contact with me but she uh, two second cousins of hers fr- from Ireland um had got back in contact with her later on in her life uh, and she loaned them uh, 300,000 US dollars to do various work in their house and mm-hmm. other things and when she sought to get the money back they kind of disappeared um, 
And, you know, she was 96 at this point and had a full time carer in um, I was still living somewhat independently um, in her apartment. And I, I I got a chance to go over and visit her. I was visiting a friend of mine who, who was an attorney uh, at the time in New York. And I popped up to, to say hello to her. Yeah. It just happened to yeah. all coincide. Um, and yeah, so so um, again, we we. we initiated proceedings in the High Court uh, and she gave her evidence um, by way of video link. Now, this was before COVID, so before video link was a thing. Right, you know? okay, yeah. Um, so even for me, I was trying to figure out how is this going to oh. work, you know? Um, <laughs> but yeah, like, she, she just did so well. Like, yeah. she, her, her neighbour downstairs brought her down, set up a laptop um, and it was all, you know, and sh- she gave her evidence and I just remember just being so inspired. Like, yeah. she's 96. Wow. She's on her own, you know, I think mm-hmm. all her siblings at that point had predeceased her. Mm-hmm. Um, and there she was in the high court in Dublin um, giving her evidence, you know. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, it was just it was a good day. So it, it, it settled. She didn't have to go into cross-examination, oh, thankfully. Um, yeah. and, and that was that. But it was, yeah, it was just one of those things where like she clearly, although, you know, she very much had her wits about her and was very independent, but clearly mm-hmm. quite a vulnerable person yeah. who yeah. Um, had been taken advantage of really mm-hmm. um, wow. but yeah that, that was a good day <laughs> very inspiring and it's great when you do come across clients that just sit with you forever then you know you remember that yes. case and that person and you become really inspired by that which I'm sure in your line of work and your your colleagues as well who work in this area you know you come across that quite a lot you know um, and particularly because you're working on advancing matters for um, the most vulnerable in society um, and just on that I guess this activist lawyer website uh, or podcast um, how in your opinion do you do you think I, I suppose you, you've had that experience of working in corporate law environment and now we can see where your passion is it's mm. in human rights law how can we use the law this is something we ask a lot of our our guests effectively I suppose to advance matters and as a tool for activism mm. yeah like I think I was talking earlier about the the um, homeless situation and you know I mean mm. we, we use the law to to advance our, our clients rights mm-hmm. um you know and and with with initiating proceedings on behalf of clients who are homeless um it, it i suppose put pressure on the state to sort the situation out and uh, those clients since were provided accommodation but you know there's a bigger issue as well uh, you know in winning i suppose the hearts and minds of people to yeah. welcome welcome asylum seekers and and migrants into Mm -hmm. their community and maybe not be persuaded by these outside elements who are trying to promote the negative um, when it comes to migrants and asylum seekers Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's up to us as well I think as practitioners to be vocal about it Mm -hmm. um, and in support of of the people we represent Um, because you know we know them quite well and, and any client who has ever come into my office who is an asylum seeker or or migrant in a way it's always how can I get an employment permit when can I start working yeah. you know when can I pay tax when mm-hmm. can I be a part of the community and contribute and mm-hmm. um, no one's ever talking about social welfare no. or how I can get a free house or how I can get you know 100 quid a week or whatever the case may be it's always how can I get a permit and start working yeah um, and be an active member of the society, society. and be mm. able to give back. That's always the question. Um, and I think maybe people who aren't aware of that can be very persuaded by these negative elements. Yeah. Um, 
yeah so so I think yeah it's, it's sort of a, a twofold thing it's right, like lawyers yeah. we can we can you know do all the great high court work but we mm-hmm. also have to advocate for our clients as well mm-hmm. and be vocal maybe in support of them yeah. um, and then it's up it's up to society really You're and right. the state yeah and you get that first hand kind of insight into what's really happening mm-hmm. um, so just I suppose for listeners and I, I, you've had a really uh, interesting transition into human rights law and I think you, you know you made a, a leap of faith I guess and followed your passion and you decided that's what you wanted to work in um, for anyone listening who might be interested in either getting into human rights law from the outset or maybe transitioning over from corporate law or commercial law into human rights what advice might you have for them Siobhan? Um, I suppose if you've time maybe um, you know get in contact with an NGO or a volunteer or just get an idea of the kind of work um, that kind of practical experience mm. um, I mean you know what, what, what I did as well was I, I went back and sort of retrained I did a master's you know mm-hmm. doing some sort of study in the area would help as well. But I think just that on the ground practical experience. I mean, even um, I know you, you mentioned Sparassi earlier mm-hmm. Um they're a wonderful organisation that um, provide services, rehabilitation to survivors of torture. Um, and they have a befriending programme where you can become a befriender. And essentially you're, you're a friend to yeah. um, an asylum seeker um, who's who's getting services from Sparassi and it's a great way to just get to know mm-hmm. the people that I've been talking about I suppose yeah. for the and the challenges while. that they face exactly and, yeah. and it's you're helping them just sure. you know texting or whatever and basic, so important. basic stuff it's important to them yeah mm. but it's but it's a good way to sort of get a feel for mm-hmm. the clients that ultimately if you do want to get into this area that you'll be working with um yeah and I, I would highly recommend it to anyone who's thinking about it I mean I, for me, although the work is challenging, um, I love coming into the office every morning um, and I didn't have that with corporate law. Mm -hmm. You know, I I love getting up. I love coming in. Um, There's lots of challenges. It can be (laughs) manic at times, um, but it's enjoyable and really rewarding. You do feel like you've achieved something at the Mm -hmm. end of the day. Brilliant. Well, Siobhan Conlon, thank you so much for joining me today. That's so insightful. And um, if anybody wants to find out more about Siobhan's work, you've got your your website up and running and I'll share a link to that um, on our podcast text. Thank you so much. Thanks a million, Sarah. Thanks everyone for joining me today. If you like the show, please remember to share and leave a review if you have a moment. And you can also check out our website, www.activistlawyer.com, where you will see some blog articles written by our guests and contributors, as well as some fabulous Activist Lawyer merchandise. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast, but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.